At Morgan Stanley, old school hard work meets bold new thinking to help you see untapped possibilities and relentlessly work with you to make them real. To learn more, visit morganstanley.com slash why us. Investing involves risk. Morgan Stanley Smith Barney LLC. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. It's Robert Samuels from The Washington Post. Host, this is Sarah Kaplan. Hi, this is Elahe Azadi with The Washington Post. Hey. This is Post Reports. I'm Carlos Lozada. It's Friday, August 30th. Today, why some schools are changing the way they teach slavery's role in American history, and debating an age-old summer tradition. So Tiffany Classy Williams has been teaching in uh, Montgomery, Alabama for, I think, 12 years. Most of the students I do teach are African-American. And she says it's as, as a descendant of slaves that it's very important for her to teach this real history to her students. If we're descendants of slaves, then that means that we have their, their DNA in us. And one of the interesting things she told me was that she tells them that when they're struggling with different things, she says, We have their genes, and those genes were very strong, like, because they were able to survive quite a bit. And so I try to use that to t- talk about resilience. I'm Joe Heim. I'm on the education team, but I sort of cover sort of the confluence of education and culture. And Joe's been talking with lots of educators. Part of his reporting into how some American schools are changing the way they teach about slavery. Slavery was definitely not taught as foundational to, you know, U.S. history, which is sad because, you know, it clearly is. So Philip Jackson is a middle school teacher in Montgomery County, Maryland, um, African-American man who grew up in the county and went to school there and now is teaching at uh, Martin Luther King Middle School in Germantown, Maryland. Very few students have an appreciable sense of U.S. history. They know that blacks were slaves. That's it. You know, um, that's that's pretty much all that most of my students know. Again, they don't know anything about, you know, the conditions of slavery. Um, they might understand that it was bad, um, but they don't understand the economics of it, the racial aspects, the, the political aspects. When I was in school, I went to, I grew up in the Des Moines area, but I went to a suburban school that was predominantly white. And so I think I was taught American history and world history through just this really classic Western white lens that was pretty brief. You know, civil rights was a yellow highlighted cutout in a two chapter section on something else, you know, like the 1960s. My name is Emily Clocky and I am an instructional coach currently at Fort Dodge Senior High and that's in Northwest Iowa, the small rural community. And I was previously a social studies teacher. Why did you decide to tackle this now? We knew that this year was a the 400th anniversary of the arrival of the first enslaved Africans in America. But over the last couple of years, as I've been looking at white supremacy, I was in Charlottesville for everything that happened down there. From the torchlight march to the riots the next day. And I've also covered clashes over Confederate memorials, statues. As I was 
doing a lot of that, covering that story, I just was realizing how much ignorance there was just about our basic history about slavery, and really not just ignorance of people that I spoke with, but my own ignorance as well, just that um, there was a lot of history that I was just unfamiliar with. And so it started me thinking about how, how we even teach this history of slavery in our schools. I have to confess I'm at a disadvantage here because I didn't attend middle school or high school in the United States. But what, what do you remember about how you were taught about slavery in, in school? From middle school and high school, I was in Catholic school. And what I remember is what I've heard from so many people I've talked with, that essentially slavery was a bad thing, but we worked to get rid of it. We had a civil war, and that ended it, and then we moved on. And so many people I've spoken with have sort of said that that was pretty much the sum total of their experience of learning about slavery. So you find throughout your reporting that there's just a lot of basic stuff that we don't know about the history of slavery. Why? Why Why are we ignorant of such a central aspect of the history of this nation? Is it something unique about slavery, or is that a problem with how we learn history overall? Well, I think it's both. I mean, slavery is was a bad thing for America, right? And so it's we don't like dwelling on negative parts of our history. But it was also very intentional in different places, and especially in the South, where you have this woman, Mildred Lewis Rutherford, who is a historian and an educator, and she makes a concerted effort to keep this history out of history books and out of textbooks. And so history books and textbooks, especially textbooks, don't really emerge until the 20th century in American schooling, obviously. And she, you know, issues these orders saying, don't say that the South left because of slavery. Don't say that the South was, plantation owners were cruel to slaves. And that becomes sort of a standard. So when you look at old history books, you know, in places in the South, in Virginia and Alabama and Texas, they shy away from descriptions of slavery that are anything less than idealized. And that also extends to other parts of the country. And we just don't want to deal with that in an honest, forthright way. You even even identified some some children's books, right, that offer a very sort of benign view of of slavery. Yeah. I mean, these these are not books from 100 years ago. These are books from the last five years, which just sort of paint a, a sort of rosy picture of slaves working for, you know, in one case, George Washington, in another case, just a southern plantation. They're not these sort of evil creations. They're just ignorance of, you know, what that portrayal does to people who are reading them. You write in your stories about a lot of, um, use the word, misinformation and, and denial how does that manifest itself? What were some of the more sort of egregious examples you found of how, how slavery is taught in that way? Well, you know, if you, if you went back and looked at over the 20th century, there's, there's just multiple examples of just glossing over this history of, of treating slavery as something that benefited Africans who came here. They eventually led a better life on a plantation than they would have at home. But this continues, even though we think we've gotten rid of this, you know, we've had just recent examples of just a couple of years ago, we had a, a textbook that referred to the people brought here as part of the slave trade as workers. Um, workers were brought to America rather than uh, enslaved people. Um, and we also have just this year in Virginia, we had a, a physical education class where kids were told to reenact escaping from a plantation. That was part of the physical education program. So you see these things crop up. You You know, you have... Uh, schools that will reenact auctions uh, as a way of 
trying to teach these lessons. Yeah, there's, I mean, I assume that this is well-intentioned, but you end up reenacting slave auctions? Right. I mean, I think it, I think it is well-intentioned, but it's just also so ill-informed. And, and you know, the, the, what we understand about this is this, all this sort of teaching where you're trying to experience, you know, pretending that you're on a slave ship or escaping from a plantation. That's a really harmful way of teaching about this history. And it really does, doesn't emphasize so much of the other history we have about slavery that would be much more useful. So this has been an issue for a long time. And what, what is prompting the educators and civil rights activists and historians that you interviewed to try to deal with this now? I think it's been building over the last 10 years or so. But, but last year, a, a really important study came out by this group, Teaching Tolerance, which is part of the Southern Poverty Law Center. And they really did a serious look at what's in our textbooks, what is happening in classrooms. They interviewed kids. And what they found from, they did polling of students that just showed just a remarkable lack of knowledge of just sort of basic facts about slavery. Like, like what facts? There's a very small percentage that understood slavery as the root cause of the Civil War. Very few understood that slavery was in all of the colonies, not just in some of the southern colonies. Generally, there's a lack of understanding that slavery was such a, an important part of the economy that it turned the United States into this powerhouse nation, this vibrant economy and political powerhouse that it came to be. And so the, the educators that are trying new approaches... Uh, what are they doing? What, what, what tools are they using to, to teach slavery? Well, a lot of what they're trying to do is original documents. You know, they're, they're trying to go through slaves' recollections of their times. Uh, you know, there was recordings done in the 1930s of former slaves who were at that point very old um, talking about their slave experience. So there's some of that. There's it's like oral histories. Oral histories, mm -hmm. looking at the actual sales of slaves from one plantation to another, the splitting up of families, understanding also much more about the abolition movement and how slaves were active in, in rebellion and resistance to their uh, condition there. So what we are trying to do at this district, what I tried to do as a teacher, was change the narrative to be absolutely more inclusive, more honest about what happened. Iowa has changed its teaching standards for the social studies. It's the standards are really allow us to constantly revisit and not have it just be a standalone one unit. This is what happened and then we ignore it again. It allows us to show that, you know, this is constantly overlapping and this is a current issue that still affects the United States today. Many students want to know about the contributions of African-Americans who were enslaved and free. And mostly we talk about, if we talk about anything other than the brutal conditions of slavery, we talk about how African-Americans actually fought back against the system, which, you know, um, again, is, is, is good to know, but there's so much more to African-American history. During one of my classes, we were studying Reconstruction, and Reconstruction is the time period after the Civil War where, you know, we made so many advances, but then at the same time, there were so many um, setbacks. It's, it's kind of like today because African-Americans and other minorities in the country have made so many advances, but then you also have setbacks. So it's kind of interesting to see the parallel between the two time periods. Has this created new tensions in the classroom, kids with different opinions, kids from different backgrounds, um, when they're all grappling together with, with, with these stories? I think it, it depends on how it's 
taught, I think for the most part, kids really want the information. They want to be, they want teachers to be direct and share as much as they know. And I think most teachers want to do that. Some of the problem is that the teachers who don't have experience in teaching this, this history, you know, they, they want more guidance on how to lead their classes through some of this difficult material. Um, but I think for the most part, both the students that I spoke with and the teachers think that you just need to be as direct as possible and, and just not sugarcoat any of this. Students just respond really well. I think that the best is that we're providing resources now that ask them to create history for themselves. So as opposed to just giving them a textbook and they read one thing and then they regurgitate the information, we're providing narratives, we're providing audio files for people to, to listen to, we're providing primary source documents and secondary source documents and asking them, how do we piece this all together to tell the right story and what is the right story? One of the things that really struck me in, in your stories was that, you know, this is an effort to, to teach the nation's history, but there's no national standard for it, right? So who gets to decide how we should teach kids about slavery? Who, who should decide how we get to teach kids about slavery? <laughs> I mean, that's, that's a huge question. And, you know, um, we don't, as I said, have a national standard for how we teach history, much less how we teach about slavery history. So in essence, it's left up to every state. I say that what you know about slavery often depends on where you grow up. Um, but states set out standards and they sort of, those provide the guidelines that each school district in the state has to meet. School districts can themselves expand on those guidelines. They have to meet the sort of minimum, but they can also do more than the minimum. It often comes down to local school boards and in some cases, you know, principals of schools and deciding, deciding what needs to be taught and what doesn't need to be taught. One of the, one of the issues that comes up with these new approaches to teaching uh, the history of slavery is how that legacy lives on today. And that can, I imagine, both make it really come alive in the classroom, but also inject a lot of politics into, into um, classroom discussions. I mean, we're seeing in the Democratic primary race, you know, there's talk of uh, reparations, there's talk of mass incarceration, police violence against African-Americans. And there's some lines that can be drawn that educators and historians can draw. Is that something that classrooms are starting to tackle as well? Or is this history class and it stays safely in the past? Most teachers I speak with do want to draw that line. They don't want to get too, you know, in too deep into the politics of today. I don't broach the lasting impacts of slavery too much because I already know that would take a lot of background knowledge. It, it's a little bit too much to talk about it, and I don't want to throw things out there because I don't want to stir up any emotions or, you know, any misconceptions and have them walk out, you know, with a misconception about it, anything. So, But there, it's an obvious line, right? Um, I mean, one of the things that's interesting for this project, um, the Washington Post did a poll of uh, a thousand Americans where we asked various questions about slavery and, and the history of slavery and what people knew about it. And, you know, as a nation, we, we don't really have a great understanding of slavery either. We, the numbers... Most people don't realize that the 13th Amendment is what outlawed slavery. Most people didn't know that there was slavery in all 13 colonies. But a really good number, 67%, I think, 
of Americans say that they feel that the legacy of slavery still has an impact in America today. So intuitively, we know that it does affect us and it affects society right now. We just don't know a lot about the actual history. So going back and and becoming much more familiar with, with what happened, I think will inform lots of things as we go forward. Joe, thanks for talking today. Thank you very much. I enjoyed it. Joe Heim covers education for The Post. His reporting is part of a larger series that includes more stories from classrooms across America and essays from historians. You can find a link to all that at postreports.com. And now, one more thing. From style reporter Lisa Bonos and Post Reports producer Lena Mohammed. All right. So tell me how the story you're working on came about. So I work in the style section, and recently we were talking about uh, how all these things that people love about summer sometimes are kind of not so great. Outdoor concerts get messy and hot and crowded and full of bugs. Long days mean that it's hard to fall asleep if the sun's not down and get your kids to bed. And when someone mentioned the idea of the summer fling actually being terrible, even though I've had a couple wonderful ones, I jumped on the assignment immediately as I wanted to find out, like, there's got to be something that's terrible about the summer fling. So we're at Franklin Hall off of U Street in Washington, D.C., and this is a bar that I've been told a lot of interns and 20-somethings hang out here. I actually have never been here before. Do you guys have summer flings you want to tell us about? No? Yeah, I don't really think I've had, like, flings, like, specifically summer flings. Like, it's just, like, whenever the moment strikes. Yeah. Any time in the year, whatever. Yeah, yeah but... It was like another long relationship because I was I was living in a, in a small touristic city, uh, like near Mediterranean coast. Summer romance is good for everybody all the time. You know, if you're not married, you should have summer romance. And if you're in a relationship and it's about to be summertime and you don't see yourself marrying that person, you should break up with them and say, it's summer romance time. Catch me in the fall and see what's up. That's how it should go down. Okay. I will just throw that out there. I think the idea of summer flings is bonkers. Because as a 24-year-old, I have a, not summer flings per se, but just flings in general. Like, I have a fling fatigue. Yeah. No, that's that's so common, Lena. Uh, And actually, one of the things I was finding out in my reporting that The short-term summer romance is no longer a break from the routine like it might have been in Greece or Dirty Dancing. Now, in the Tinder era, it is the routine. Everything is like a short-term thing that no one wants to commit. And so getting to have a fling is like not a special thing anymore. Exactly. It's like this ice cream cone you get to have any day of the week. So who wants to have one? I'm honestly just sick of ice cream. When you're having ice cream every day, sometimes you just want a meal. Are you having a summer fling this summer? I'm not. Is that a conscious choice? I mean, all my relationships are flings. (laughs) 
I never start dating with the intention of, the, of something being a fling. Like, there's a clear understanding that th- this is going to be like a long-term, committed type of thing. And what will often happen is that about like a month, maybe two months, like three months at most in the relationship, they'll just start saying like, oh, actually, um, I don't know what I want. Um, I'm not sure where I am in my life right now. Um, I'm not sure like what I'm doing. Uh, I'm not in a good place right now in my life mentally or like I just graduated. Like, did you not know that you just graduated when you started dating? That automatically takes it from a relationship to a fling, in my opinion. Um, And so, yeah, all my relationships thus far, I think, almost all my relationships are flings. And are you dating people that are pretty much your own age? Uh, Pretty much, yeah. I think that's a hallmark of this time in your life. In your mid-20s, everybody's trying to figure out their careers and maybe they're going to grad school or on some short-term assignment. It's just, it's a thing that happens. Mm. You could try going a little older. There's, it's not perfect at any age or stage. But I'm just saying it's not you. It's, like, where you are in life right now. Lisa Bonos writes about dating and relationships for The Post. Lena Mohammed is an assistant producer for Post Reports. What dating apps are you on? I'm just going to pull the actual ones I'm using. Oh, I always love to ask people that. Bumble, Minder, and Tinder. What is Minder? The Muslim Tinder. Have you tried Hinge? I have not. Hinge touts itself as the relationship app. So you might have luck on there. So no flings there. Uh, You could definitely still have a fling on on Hinge, but I don't know. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Our executive producer is Madalika Sika. Our senior producer is Matt Collette. Our producers are Alexis Diao, Rina Flores, Lena Mohammed, Maggie Penman, Jordan Marie Smith, and Ted Muldoon, who also wrote our theme music. Our intern is Renny Svernovsky. The Post Director of Audio is Jess Stahl. I'm Carlos Losada. Martine Powers will be back Monday with more stories from The Washington Post. NYBG's brand new online education program, Plant Studio, offers bite-sized courses tailor-made for you. Guided by plant professionals, dig into botany, floral design, landscape design, and more. Online learning your way. Register at nybg.org.